I remember the first uh, conference I ever went to. I was doing a book signing and a reader came up to me and she was very emotional and, and she was like, I really wanted to meet you in person. And she said, my son came out as trans and I've never known a trans person. I've never met a trans person and I'd never seen trans people represented in the media in any other way other than negative and tragic. So when I found out that he was trans, I was really, really scared and I didn't know what to do. And I went to you know, my book group and I was um, a romance reader and I went to the romance group that I'm a part of and I was talking about this and I was talking about, you know, my feelings about this. And someone was like, well, there are trans romances and they, you know, sent me one of your books. And she was like, this is the first time I've ever seen trans people who are happy and who, a narrative where trans people are happy and thrive. And she was like, and that was just so important to me to know that there is hope that my son is not going to die tragically, that he can be loved and have a good life. And she's like, and then to find out that you are also trans and here is this trans person who has a publishing career and who is, you know, out and proud and was just, you know, so meaningful. That was the voice of E.E. E. Ottoman, the first trans romance author to write trans characters in romance. This is Faded Mates. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. And I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor. This week's episode is a fascinating history of how trans romance became a part of the romance genre. One of the things that I thought was really fascinating about this conversation, and we'll talk more about it at the end, obviously, is that we really can touch the beginnings of trans romance. And EE has been there from the jump. And this whole conversation is such an interesting guide to this subgenre that I think not all of us have had access to because it feels like it feels like trans romance should have been around since this jump. E.E. is obviously, we had a great conversation with him, but also really digging into kind of like what it was like at the beginning of the genre, the way that it's changed even from cis authors, and why it's important to have own voices representation, trans authors writing about the trans experience and falling in love in romance. So without further ado, here's our conversation with E.E. Ottoman. Welcome, Eve, to Faded Mates. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this because we, you and I had a phone conversation. I don't know if you even remember this, but we had a phone conversation a few years ago. We were working on a trailblazer list for the RWA at the time. And I rang your bell because I thought, oh, E.E. will be able to tell me. Who is the first, like, is there a first trans romance writer? And you right. said, I'm pretty sure it's me. Yeah. And I'm really thrilled that you're joining us for um, these conversations about the history of the genre. I do remember that conversation several years ago at this point. And at the time, as far as I was aware, I am the first out trans author of a trans romance novel um and as of as far as i'm still aware that's that's still the case i published a kind of like a longer short story very short novella in 2013 i believe 
um, which I think is the first. And tell us about, just so for posterity's sake, the title. And is that still available as an ebook? Because sometimes things go in and out of availability. Yeah. And a lot of my earlier um, works are not available right now. It was called Your Happy End, and it is available for free on my website if folks want to read it. Right. And everything everyone knows, I'll put in show notes. So if you're looking for those links, we will direct everybody right to them. Um, Tell us about, like, your journey to and kind of through romance. Growing up, I definitely read some, like, historical fiction that probably borders on romance, some uh, fantasy and science fiction that, that borders on romance. I'm a huge fan of uh, Louise McMaster Bajold's books and her um, science fiction books, um, the Four Coasts series in particular, is like has been one of my favorite things since I was a teenager. Um, and some of her books definitely have strong romantic elements. Um, but I didn't really read genre romance and I didn't really consider myself a romance reader, um, mostly because my experience of the romance that was available to me at my public library did not include any um, trans or queer characters at all. And the kind of uh, very homogenous whiteness, straightness, cisness of the genre really put me off and really made me think this is not a genre for me um, where I am welcome. So that was pretty much my relationship. Um, with the genre of romance as growing up and as a teenager and as a young adult. Um, as a young adult, I did read and write a lot of fan fiction. Um, so that was kind of where I experienced um, romance tropes and romance stories, but with queer people and uh, trans characters. Is, you mentioned some like science fiction fantasy has speculative fiction been more forward thinking about including queer and trans characters than romance in general? Do you know? Um, I don't know, like, quantitatively. I don't know, like, that history. My perception... Yeah, perception is important, right? My perception, and particularly, like, when I was younger, is yes. Um, I definitely saw a lot more characters and relationships and subject matter related to um, queerness and queer experience. Um, Heavy, like, queer coding is something that was, you know, very, very common in science fiction and fantasy um, in a way that my perception was it didn't really exist, um, unless we're talking about, like, characters who were explicitly written to be villainous in, you know... um, genre romance right so um you know like like i talked about like the vorkoskin series um there are canonically trans characters in those books i have some issues with the way that that transness is talked about and portrayed um there's canonical queerness there are characters that are definitely um coded as you know trans um or having trans experiences and uh those characters are are not villains right they're 
there are side characters and they're supposed to be characters that you're attracted to and write for and things like that. Um, and so like that was definitely something that I didn't experience in romance, but I did experience in science fiction and fantasy. So at what point did romance land on your radar then? Right. Because there's a, this is the question that you, for me at least, and, and you should define your your own work, but it's so clearly romance that I'm sort of curious about, you know, how do you make that move? Was there a book that really inspired you or an author who said, E, come into the club? Or fan fiction. Yeah. Or did it just come through fanfic? So I guess, how did you know that there was publishing to be done in this sphere? Both with the fan fiction that I wrote and with the Um, original fiction that I wrote, I was writing romance for a really long time. Um, and, And I definitely, like, had thoughts, like, oh, I would love to publish this, but there is no market. This is obviously something that doesn't exist. I never see these books on the shelves. So clearly, you know, I'm just writing it for me or for my friends to have fun. Um, but this is not going to be a career path for me. And that kind of changed, like, I like stumbled, I was on a website and I stumbled across an ad for an anthology call. Um, Less than three press, which no longer exists, but was for a long time um, an LGBTQ specific small romance press. Um, Had an advertisement for an anthology call um, for an anthology of short stories. Um, And I think like... It, w- it had to be romance, it had to be a mystery, um, or involve detectives in some way, and then it had to be a, a queer story. Um, and I that was like the first time that I really even realized that there was a publishing scene um, for LGBTQ romance. And it just so happened that when I saw that ad... Can you ground us with a date? Um, so this would have been like 2010, 2011-ish. Okay. Um, I mean, after the rise of eBooks, right? Yeah, so this sure. would have been, but like right around the time that e-romance, that digital romance has become, or digital in general is happening. Yeah. So my understanding is that a lot of these, these small LGBTQ presses, romance presses in particular, could exist because of the rise of ebooks. And they were definitely, um, you know, digital first. Um, although I do think that they produced some um, paperback books. But well, I mean, I think it must have been that the barriers to entry then were basically zero, right? Whereas if you were going to start publishing and needed to print books, and I mean, right, like the capital for that. So it makes sense to me that these would have you know, happen and and really fast from what I remember, right? Really fast it went from romance was one thing to like romance was a lot of things. Yeah. And I think like, you know, there's always been this culture of um, LGBTQ bookstores publishing LGBTQ books um, as like physical books, very, very small runs, um, you know, very specific to the, the queer community around that particular bookstore. Um, and then there's always been like a zine culture, but, and I'm really very interested in this. So like, if somebody is listening to this podcast and has any information, please get in touch with me about like whether or not there was like a strong 
romance scene in those in that in those kind spaces. of publishing world of um, LGBTQ bookstore publishing and like zine creation and specifically if there was like any trans romance that came out of that scene because I have not found any evidence that there was but I like I get like I assume there had to have been like something sure. um, that was just probably so such a small run that it's um, known to only a few people at this point. Smith, I went to Smith and the live, the special collections at Smith are specifically focused on zines, particularly around feminism and queer studies. And so I'm happy to put you in touch with the person at special collections there because I've been doing a lot of work with them on something else. But um, if that is something that you're interested in, I'm like, she would, I'm sure, be happy to chat with you. Yeah, I think that would be great. I would love to have a conversation with her about that. Because I'm definitely, like, I I feel like there's some works that bridge these two kind mm-hmm. of sides of this story that I just haven't found yet. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons why we're doing these interviews is because we want to have, we want to say the names of these people who were there at, at the start of all of the different sort of movements in romance. So, um, you know, you were talking about less than three. And one of the things I wrote down on my to say to you is, you know, is there somebody specific at less than three who you felt was a champion or, you know, who were the champions as we go? But I want to hear more about, you know, how you came to romance. Yeah. So I think seeing that anthology call from less than three was the first time where I realized that there was a market for um, at that point queer romance um trans romance wasn't really kind of on my radar um and as I became more involved in the um romance community was on very few people's radar so um anyway that when I saw that ad I it was during the summertime um I had a few weeks off where I was like all my other housemates who I was living with at the time had gone other places and I was just kicking around the house by myself. And I was like, well, I can write a short story. And, you know, I wrote something for this anthology call and I sent it off with absolutely no expectation that it would be accepted at all. Um, and then I went on and I was going to go to graduate school. Um, I ended up, I did end up going to graduate school. So I was fully involved in that and not thinking about publishing. And then I got an email for them um, that said that they wanted to publish that short story. Um, And the editor who emailed me also said that um, that short, that short story had impressed her enough where she was like, you have anything else that you would like to publish. We would love to see it. Um, And and then I was like, well, nice feeling. (laughs) (laughs) all right, then do I have anything else? <laughs> yeah, it's both a great feeling and terrifying because you're like, wait, right. what? <laughs> I was like, this is not something I was expecting to do at all. So, um, but since that door was open, yeah, then I started like writing other things and I published through them. And, and then I ended up um, publishing through a bunch of other um, small uh, LGBTQ specific presses and self-publishing um, probably, I think that like almost immediately 
and and once I started publishing romance, obviously I started reading romance, um, and I started reading a lot of the other LGBTQ romance that was being published because I was like, I need to know, you know, what this this um, community looks like. And also, you know, I, I've loved these kinds of stories in fan fiction and I've loved these stories when they've peripherally showed up in other genres. So this is great. Um, and, you know, I definitely, you know, read tons and tons and tons of stuff and so much of it was so great. And I remember, you know, like the first time I read like a KG Charles book and, um, you know, and uh and that, you know, and then after I'd been reading LGBTQ romance for a certain amount of time, then I was like, well, now I'm really interested in reading more mainstream romance. And that was when I kind of branched out and started reading um, more cishet romance um, from more mainstream authors and going back and reading stuff that people, you know, generally hold up in really high regard as far as, like, the history of the genre um, and really, like, immersing myself probably like over the last 10 years um most of that has been spent reading romance pretty much exclusively um welcome to our club one of us one of us i was like so there's a reason we're gonna get along so great (laughs) so yeah um and you know as far as like trans romance goes like i was very interested in writing trans romance i'd already come out as trans myself before I got published. Um, and I was very interested from the beginning, um, in publishing trans romance. Um, and one of the things I think that, you know, like, I think that there was like several kind of unfortunate things that happened very, very early in my writing career. Um, one of which, um, was that there were several instances of trans authors being outed that happened almost immediately um, when I started interacting with kind of Romance Landia online. Um, And then because that happened, there was like a little bit more, there was more conversation about like trans people in romance. um, And there was a lot of backlash um, that got really, really ugly, particularly when we're talking, like, very early 2010s. Um, a lot of, a lot of people, like, posting, uh, tweeting some really kind of dark stuff. There's this, especially because 2010 feels, like, early for all of us online, and Mm -hmm. so these sort of pockets of community online, I can imagine they, you know, they were all fraught in different ways. And I'm curious about, were you feeling, was was the challenge there, I mean, obviously, outing people is a particularly horrific challenge, right? That's a terrible way to do this. But I'm curious about, um, were you finding that that was, those were the challenges within a larger structure too? Like, was there interest in, were you hearing from traditional publishers or small presses more than less than three? Like, were there many, many people who were curious about trans romance or was it really pocketed at this point? Um, I think like at this point, there was no interest in trans Mm -hmm. romance from anyone. Um, when I started publishing with less than 
free. They're, they had never published a trans romance. Um, they had uh, some really questionable language on their submissions guidelines um, around, like that was not, that they did not intend to target trans people, right? But that did have very transphobic connotations, particularly towards trans women, to the point where I'm not going to say what it was. No, yes, um, yes, right, yeah. of course. But so, I mean, you're saying, you're saying, like, not just for now would we have found that language offensive. You're saying... No, it like, was Like, even at the time, it yeah, was, right? It was, it was the type of language that we're talking about was definitely, like, more, was kind of, like, common internet slang that you would have mm. found in a lot of different places. Yeah, I see. Okay. But, like... You know, if you were to have talked to a group of trans women and been like, do you feel like this is transphobic towards you in particular? Yes. The majority would have been like, definitely. Got like, okay. yes. Right. <laughs> For many, many writers, they hit one roadblock and, you know, peace out. <laughs> you know, you it feels like when you're the first, though, that, I mean, it's all roadblock, right? I mean, you have to choose to push through. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Ava Wicks, author of Virtual Reality Bites. This sounds like a really cute premise, Sarah. I know. Our main character is Zoe Wood. She's just gotten divorced for a second time, but she is a romance author. So she gets an offer to essentially test drive a virtual reality kind of system where you can like a live inside a romance novel. All I can think about this is that if this was real, it would make people billions of dollars. Of course. So she gives it a shot and nothing is ever what it seems in either virtual or real romance, especially when she runs into her brother's best friend, Xander, inside the game. I love it. So this is a brother's best friend book. It's an enemies to lovers book. It's a it's a little bit faded mates, I think. Are we destined to be together? I love it. And and also ask this kind of big question that we've all, every single one of us have asked before, which is, if we could live inside a romance novel, would it be as amazing as it seems? So to learn more about Virtual Reality Bites or about Ava, visit avawix.com. That's A-V-A-W-I-X-X.com. Or as always, you can find information on Ava and all of our sponsors in show notes. Virtual Reality Bites is available tomorrow, April 21st, in print and ebook. Thanks to Ava for sponsoring this week's show. There was no press that was really interested in taking trans stories. That was really clear to me. Um, there was really, like, no press, even amongst LGBTQ presses, right? Um, or queer presses of the time. There was no um, press that that had really inclusive language um, in their submissions guidelines or really anywhere. Um, the the trans authors that I talked to, most of whom were closeted when I first started writing in romance, um, their, the general, gen, general consensus was that you're not going to have a career if you're out. Um, and that's not even like if you want to write trans romance, right? That was like so far beyond 
what anyone thought was possible for the genre at that point. Um, and there was like, there was some stories that had what, what got talked about a lot as like trans themes, um, which were not actually like stories with an actual trans person in them by and large. They were stories with like a shapeshifter who can, you know, change um, their body to be a male body or a woman's body. You I kind of um, remember those. Uh, yeah. Right. I remember that. Uh, you know, hermaphrodite alien who has, you know, multiple sets of genitalia um, or, you know, secondary gender characteristics, mm-hmm. um, you know, these kinds of things. And they would get like labeled or talked about as, as like trans themes or like somebody who is like in a virtual reality and has, you know, um, who is a cisgendered male, but then in the virtual reality is a cisgendered woman or vice versa, or, you know, has dream sequences where they have a different set of different kind of body and a different kind of experiences. And most of these stories, I mean, I think that these kinds of elements existed across a wide variety of romance subgenres, but most of them were in erotic romance, right? right? They were coming out of erotic romance and it was really like, it was was very sexualized. It was fetishized. fetishized. Yeah. Very much so. And and the the very few times, um, I don't think I ever encountered this early in my career, but going back and looking at the history, the very few times where you do have a trans character appear, often, again, it's an erotic romance. And again, it's like um, uh, a very, very um, sexualized and fetishized uh, side encounter that a character has before going on to their, you know, one true love, who's this. Um, And that's almost always a trans woman, right? Were you always writing historicals at this point? Because I feel like there's some intersection here in the the historical piece as well. No. So at that point, um, I started writing historicals. I think, like, um, The Doctor's Discretion was the first historical I ever wrote. That's my favorite in her book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, and so for like the first part of my career, I wrote um, fantasy romance. Okay, um, so and- before we get to historicals then, because I'm curious. So at this point, you've you've noticed, obviously, you've noticed that there are a lot of problematic elements around transness in romance. And mm-hmm. here you are. And you decide you're going to you're going to do the thing. And walk us through, like, that decision, the kind of moment when you were like, I'm going to do this thing. Sure. And do you, I mean, I guess, I guess the first question is, was there a, can you pinpoint the moment where you were going to do the thing? Or did it just sort of happen? <laughs> oh, yes. Um, so, yeah. this oh, came I can tell out. This is going to uh, be good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I know. You're like, oh, yeah. Oh, you say, when I someone see, says, oh, I yes, your face. I'm like, I'm here. <laughs> Yeah, so this came out of the whole controversy around Jess Wave. I'm not sure if you all... For the listeners sure. and me. I am also <laughs> listeners. <laughs> so um, Jess Wave was a review site 
that specifically reviewed MM Romance. And yeah, you've heard of this. So, so there were several anything. like controversies surrounding this uh, review site, and it was huge. It was at at that point. Um, you know, when we're talking like 2012, 2013. Yes, this is like the heyday of romance book blogging yeah, in a lot romance of ways. Blogger. Yeah. So Heaven. this was the the biggest review site, or at least it was perceived to be the biggest review site for specifically for MM romance. Um, and in that way, within MM um, and you know, by association, queer romance in general, it had a lot of power. Um, and the, you know, I may get like the details of this may get a little fuzzy because it was okay. a long time ago. But anyway, the owner of the site, the main reviewer posted, and I think like it was in response to some other drama that I'm not 100% aware of. Um, that they would not review a book with a trans man character because, and she, she, um, used some really problematic language, uh, a lot, I'll say a lot of really problematic language to talk about trans people, to talk about trans bodies, to talk about, um, vaginas and vulvas you know it was very kind of like you know ew we don't want that here that's not what this is about you know my readers only want dick you know like and that uh, for obvious reasons I'm or reasons I hope would be obvious went some pretty dark places pretty quick um and it was specifically in in regard to trans romance and it was specifically her saying we will not have that kind of content on this site because it grosses us out trans men and romance grosses us out and you know obviously there was like a huge twitter storm um many many comments on both sides um i had a lot of strong things to say about that. I was really upset. Um, and I remember I commented and I just got like piled on by people who were supportive of this site and supportive of her stance. Um, and, you know, saying that, you know, they'd never buy one of my books. They were going to boycott every publisher who ever worked with me, just tons and tons and tons of stuff. And then, you know, I, went over to Twitter and kind of like there was the same kind of a similar pile on happened on Twitter. And I remember asking some of the other authors that I knew at the time, um, some of whom were like quite big names in MM at that point. Like what are these, like, where are these trans books Like, I've never read a romance novel with a trans man (laughs) in it, you know, like, much less, like, an MM romance with, like, a trans man in it or, like, an MM romance with, like, two trans men in it. Like, I would love to read that. (laughs) Right, like, woman on about. (laughs) Right, exactly. They're, like, closing the gates on what doesn't exist. Right, right? you know, that, that people are getting, like, so angry about. And nobody could think of anything 
titles. Like nobody could come up with like a single book. There, there was just like this firestorm that was happening where people were being horrifically transphobic around the idea that one day there could be a trans romance novel that this site that they either worked for or were in support of might be asked to review. And so at that point, I had been like wanting to write trans stories and wanting to write trans romance, but being like, no, there's no market. Nobody wants this. Nobody's going to publish this. And at that point, I was like, you know, I'm just going to do it. Like, I'm already getting the hate. Like, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit the crime, right? So... <laughs> So that's when I wrote, and I wrote the first, you know, short story was kind of like dipping my toe in, and then I went on and I wrote A Matter of Disagreement um, and Song of the Spring Moon Waning and a bunch of other books that actually do have canonical trans characters in them. Um, and I think like that was really like happened, it was kind of like a... a a turning point because like while I... It was, as far as I know, the first out trans author to do that. There was a whole bunch of books that then got published by other trans authors very soon after. So I think that that was, there was kind of like this feeling, um, first of all, that there was a bunch of, of authors who came in um, a couple years after I did, who were out, who did not feel like they needed to be closeted in order to save their careers or have a career, and also who felt like um, there was that that there really needed to be trans romance in the genre, and also that you know this kind of atmosphere of like we can all be homophobic you know, we can all be transphobic and we can all say these things and we can all make fun of trans bodies while also there being no trans content whatsoever, you know, Mm -hmm. just like, you know, like, well, if we're going to get the backlash and people are going to say these negative things about us, like we might as well be writing the books and just like let what happens happens. So... And I think one of the questions we're always really interested, too, as we talk to people who are, like, you know, blazing the path is we know, we know as readers ourselves what these books mean to to us. So are there moments from your readers where they have talked to you about, like, the personal or emotional impact of your books or other trans books on on them and their, their place in romance? Sure. Because I don't want to just talk about the haters, right? I want to talk about the yeah. people who, who love your books, too. Yeah, I mean, like, all the time. That's the reason why I'm still writing romance. Um, you know, I think that I've gotten, and and pretty much, like, straight off the bat, started getting, like, so many trans people reaching out to me. And, you know, for for a lot of trans readers who have come into the genre, um, my books or other books written by trans authors with trans characters in them or the first romance that they actually like pick up and the first time where they're actually like romance is the genre that has place for me to be in it um you know and and um I just recently you know with the companion which is the book that just came out this year my book that just came out this year you know had one of those comments about 
you know, um, a, a trans woman wrote a review, you know, that's like picking up this book and seeing how trans women are normalized in this romance novel made me feel like any other woman who would be welcome in the romance genre. And I just think like, I've heard that so often and that's, that's just amazing. And that's a hundred percent why I write. And I've also heard from like other authors who came into the genre after me, um, who really felt like because tr- there was, because because I was writing, because I was very kind of obviously trans, because I've tried to be as visible as possible, they were like, this is a genre that I can work in. You know, this is a place that has space for me and this is not so impossible a thing to do. Um, and I remember the first uh conference I ever went to. I was doing a book signing um, and a reader came up to me and, um, you know, she was, she was, she was very emotional and, and she was like, I really wanted to meet you in person. And she said, you know, my son came out as trans and I've never known a trans person. I've never met a trans person and I'd never seen trans people represented in the media in any other way other than negative and tragic. So when I found out that he was trans, I was really, really scared and I didn't know what to do. And I went to, you know, my book group and I was um, a romance reader and I went to the, the romance group that I'm a part of. And I was talking about this and I was talking about, you know, my feelings about this. And someone was like, well, there are trans romances and they, you know, sent me one of your books and she was like, you know, that was just, just, this is the first time I've ever seen trans people who are happy and who a narrative where trans people are happy and thrive. And she was like, and that was just so important to me to know that there is hope that my son is not going to die tragically, that he can be loved, um, and have a good life. And she's like, and then to find out that you are also trans and here is this trans person who has a publishing career, you know, and who is, you know, out and proud and was just, you know, so meaningful. Um, and so, yeah, I think like, that's really why, um, I continue to write trans romance and why, like at this point, I only write trans romance, um, and why I, I think that, trans romance is so important um, and continuing to push for it is so important um, even even despite kind of the the continuing roadblocks that exist um, in the industry and and in some cases in the fandom that's a good story I know I'm like <laughs> I'm sorry that's I'm just fine. a good story. I'm like this week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Kelly Kane, author of An Acquired Taste, which you can get right now in ebook, print book, or audio. An Acquired Taste is the story of two chefs, Rowan and Knox. They have been enemies since culinary school, and now they are back in each other's orbit as they are going head-to-head in a reality TV show cooking competition. There are a few setups that I love more. Obviously, everyone knows I love it a chef book, but I really love chefs competing for something because chefs play dirty. <laughs> Knox and Rowan kind of run into each other, you know, behind stage or whatever, right as the book opens. And he sort of casually pulls something out of his pocket and it falls to the floor and it's his Michelin star. <laughs> and he- 
French. And he's like, oh, sorry, that's mine. (laughs) Right? Listen, this is exactly what I want. I am reading this book right now. I'm excited. So Kelly Kane, you can find more about an acquired taste at Kelly's website, kellykaneauthor.com or kellykaneauthor on all socials. As always, you can learn more about Kelly, about the book, and about all of our sponsors' books on show notes every week. Thanks to Kelly for sponsoring this week's show. As a middle school teacher, I one thing I will say that I think is really interesting, and again, like, I, we had a YA episode, and I did a bunch of reading for that, and I was really impressed by how traditional publishing, there do seem to be many more books with transgender characters in YA. And mm-hmm. for my my students, yeah. not just my trans students, but my students, that is a really important thing that I feel really happy that, like, I put these books in my classroom and, you know, to know that that has changed so fast, at least in YA for kids, does make me feel pretty happy. And I think that it's changed, like, so much just across the board in publishing. You know, like, I can get really frustrated and be like, you know, why aren't there more trans romance? Why aren't there more trans every genre? You know, why do trans authors still struggle the way that they do? Um, But, you know, thinking back to what publishing looked like, you know, 10 years ago, what, what romance looked like, when I first, you know, became involved with it, it's just been huge change um, and and really kind of a flourishing of trans literature across the board that I really just hope. But there's more, right? There's right. more to go, right? Yeah, like we can't, definitely yeah. more to go. But yeah, it's just like a world of difference from what it looked like in, in 2010. So maybe now is a good time then to talk about where there are where where we can go from here as a genre and this is mm-hmm. maybe a good time to talk about trans women and yeah. how the genre treats trans women writers i mean and readers but yeah so i think that um there's still unfortunately well first of all i think that there are several things have happened recently um in romance in particular lgbtq romance in particular Um, One is that a lot of those small presses that existed when I first started writing no longer exist. So due to um, the way that publishing has changed, particularly over the last like five years, a lot of very small indie presses have gone out of business. um, And that's been really, really catastrophic for um, small LGBTQ presses in particular, which is, you know, was certainly like my gateway to publish in the genre. And I think was a lot of other um, trans authors gateways to publishing um, the publishing world in general. And so um, that that's really unfortunate. I think that now a lot of, people who are starting out, their um, options are really either to self-publish or to work with a fairly large mainstream publisher. Um, And unfortunately, there is still a lot of hesitancy on the part of 
larger mainstream publishers to publish trans romances um, and to work with trans authors on doing that. Um, yeah, I mean, I can really like only think of a handful of um, trans titles that have been published by kind of more um, mainstream romance presses and imprints. Um, and mo most of them have not been written by out trans authors. So that's, that's, a, that's an ongoing problem. Um, I think that, you know, um, Karina has been trying really hard to publish more trans romances, you know, to, to publish, um, trans authors writing trans romances or just trans authors writing any books, um, which I think is really, really commendable. But, you know, across the board, there's still this, this lack of support, I think, for trans authors, um, particularly trans authors writing trans romance um, from larger presses and imprints. Um, and there's, yeah, so I think like that really needs to change. And I think that that's particularly true for trans women. Um, there are so few trans women authors working in the genre. Um, and there's so few trans women working behind the scenes. And I think that, um, you know, I can't, or, you know, like I'm very hesitant to speak for the trans women in the genre and to talk about the specific kinds of gatekeeping that they face. Cause I don't, I've not really experienced that. And um, um, I don't want to misrepresent the struggles that they faced, but I think like they definitely do, I think, um, face barriers that like a trans guy like me is not going to face or, um, uh, you know, trans misogyny exempt non-binary person is not going to face. Um, and I think like, you know, I think some of that comes back to romance being seen as a, as a genre for cis women. Um, and so in some kind of terrible ways, it is easier for people who were assigned female at birth to kind of come into that space. Um, but yeah, I think that, so I think that that's really, there are, there are multi layers, um, to the kind of gatekeeping that trans women face, um, in this genre. I also just want to add that when we talk about um, trans writers, marginalized writers across the board working in the genre, there's a difference between working in the genre and being paid the way you should be paid to work in the genre. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's probably also at play here, largely because of, like you said, publishers, big publishers resisting or, you know, being reticent about acquiring books by trans writers, um, and then self-publishing, you know, just being difficult um, to pull off for anybody. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, self-publishing, you know, to, to do self-publishing at a level where you can really compete with books that have, you know, a big press, 
money behind them, you need a lot of money, right? Right. And I think when you're talking about like the trans community in particular, the trans community is very, very impoverished. Um, You know, most of trans people in the United States live under the poverty line. And so, um, yeah, that's definitely a huge barrier to trans people being able to publish romance um, and then also just, you know, market their books or write books that are then discoverable by the majority of readers. Well, and I would also imagine, I mean, so, you know, writing a book doesn't make a book publishable, right? Like there's so many things that have to happen. So it costs money, but you need editors. So if that editor is trying to gatekeep out like sort of, you know, or like police, you know, sort of the identity in the book. If you have, you can't get a cover artist to like make a cover that is appealing, that looks the way you want. I mean, so it feels like it's not just even as simple. I mean, there's so many ways in which, you know, the brakes get put on and then it, that, right? So it's like many, many, like for people listening at home, it's not just like, oh, I wrote this book. I can't, I self-publish. Now what? There's a lot of steps even in between there that you would want someone who is going to respect the work or understand the work. For sure. You know, and, and one of the things that I think a lot about, um, you know, is, is questions like that, you know, like how many editors are there who are really knowledgeable about trans people and trans stories. And so therefore are going to be good fits for these kinds of projects. You know, that's something that, as an author who publishes trans books, who self-publishes trans books, I think about all the time, you know, like how many cover artists are available. Um, You know, the whole stock photo issue is, you know, hugely problematic for all marginalized people trying to put people on their covers. Um, And definitely for trans people, because there is little to no stock photos of trans people um you know i think that you know there's not one of the things that i've been thinking a lot about recently is kind of like how do you find agents who are going to be good fits for you and your books if you're a trans person writing trans stories like there's very 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 few out trans agents just in publishing as a whole, you know, and then if you're looking at like, say, romance, that number gets even smaller. Um, And then if you're trying to work with a a cis agent, um, you know, you're, you're, ideally, you really want someone who is going to have like kind of a deeper level knowledge of the story you're trying to tell and how to present that story. Um, and how to work with you to make it the the truest and best version of that story, you know, so you definitely don't want to be working with someone for whom you're going to have to, like, explain kind of trans 101, you know, that goes for editors, that goes for agents, um, and then it just gets really, really complicated really, really, really quickly. So what you're speaking to is community, right? And I I wonder if we can talk a little bit about your personal community. Where have you found, you know, people who lift you up, people who push you to be better, to write bigger, better, 
you know, more, whatever, whatever the adjective is, right? I think um, I'm really curious about other authors, about editors, about, again, sort of naming these names of people who are important, who you feel like are really helping the genre thrive. Yeah, so I'm really grateful to, you know, other um, trans authors in the genre. Um, you know, uh, Mae Peterson ha- is a very close friend of mine, you know, has been really, really great, really supportive, um, a very, very loud um, and important advocate for trans women in the genre. Um, you know, I, there's lots of other trans authors who have, you know, come into the genre, some of whom still work, some of whom have left, um, who I'm really grateful for their support. Um, and, and, and they're, you know, really, really, really great allies. Um, you know, I think that like KG Charles has been, a hugely important ally to trans authors, a lot of trans authors um, in the genre and like bringing up trans issues and, um, you know, connecting, you know, me personally and I know other people with editors and, you know, who can do that kind of work. We're just always looking for like, who else should we be talking to? Like, what are the, who are the people? This is sort of separate, but we're, you know, who are the people who we need to make sure like we we get them recorded. Um, so are there, I guess I want to talk about your books. You. <laughs> I know. Right? Yeah. So I, I think let's just go to, the, go to the beginning, which is what makes E.E. E. Ottoman romance? Um, I t- like, I really like writing romances that um, are very kind of, uh, low angst. So I like, I like writing romances that are diverse, that have diverse casts. Obviously I write trans romances, um, queer romances. Um, but I'm, I'm also have thought a lot about kind of the, um, representing disability in my books um, representing racial diversity in my books. Class. Um, I think you do class. so much with class. It's so interesting. Yeah. You know, that that having kind of the, the full spectrum of the diversity that I see in my, you know, day-to-day life reflected in my books is really super important for me. Um, and then I also like writing um, low angst romance. I write um, most of my romance, I think, would probably be categorized as um, lower conflict or low angst just because um, I really like having romance with trans and and queer characters that is, um, you know, a softer place to land. Um, I think particularly over the last, you know, four to five years, it's just been kind of like, so brutal for the LGBTQ community um, that I think there's definitely a role for kind of like softer stories that at the same time doesn't um, turn away from 
the realities, right? So I write historical romance um, at the moment. I wrote um, fantasy romance and paranormal romance for a long time. Um, and I now write historical romance. And I really want to represent the historical realities um, of whatever moment that I'm choosing to write in. Um, but I want to do it in a way that feels um, gentle. So I think that those are kind of um, what I think about when I think about like what my brand is. <laughs> <laughs> Can I, I also feel though a part of your brand to me is, um, and I, I think you write a great novella. Right. Like, yes. and so, I mean, so sometimes I like to ask Sward. people, like, you know, when you talk to a runner, they're like, I'm a marathoner. And other people are like, no, I'm a 10 miler or whatever. So do you think that there is a way that you're attracted to that length in, in particular? Or is it just that, like, you no. know, you have so many stories. I mean, I don't, I'm always really curious about like that part of it too. No, I, I write short. Um, and I think that just within the last couple years I've kind of embraced that because for a long time I felt really guilty about the fact that I tended to write shorter stories um I remember you know an editor on Twitter being like novellas are dead you need to be writing you know full-length novels you need to be writing three full-length novels a year and I was like oh my god I can't do that I'm not that author like and then I beat myself up about right. it for like a good like year solid that I couldn't do that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just tend to like gravitate towards I think like shorter stories when I think about like this is this is my, this is the plot, this is the story that I want to tell, this is the relationship that I want to tell. Like it tends to be in that that shorter format. Yeah, um, and also I think like my writing style. Right. Um, works it's so that. tight. Yes, right. exactly. That's what yeah. I was going to say. You're not flowery. It's like no, very. It's so, oh, it's so good. And it's so, it's so economical in a lot of yes. ways. Like there's, when you have something to say, it's said like perfectly and in way fewer words than I ever need to. Than I <laughs> Thank you. Right. Thank you so much. I'm always like, how yeah. do we do this? <laughs> I know. And extremely sexy. Hello. Yeah, I wrote a whole thread <laughs> once about a matter Extremely of disagreement, sexy. which is my favorite. Where I was like, oh, oh, oh super Stop hot. It. it was great. So sexy. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I my my style tends to have that kind of economy to it, where I'll have like a in my notes like a beat, and then I'll like write it, and it's like two sentences, and I'm that's like, well, the beat, and that's there it. You go. Right. I guess that's like, done then. <laughs> right. Moving on. Let's get a so. drink. <laughs> Look. Every great um, Beatles song is like two and a half minutes long. So, you know, length is, I mean, that, but I think I, I, I want to say that, like, I think there is a pressure. Yeah. I, I sense that, you know, novels are somehow better or more important, but like, we love novellas here. And I think that they are really great, satisfying stories. And I, I, so I want to respect, like, your style is, I think, one that will appeal to a lot of readers because you can just, like, immerse yourself in the world and get that full story. But, you know, and then it's like, you know, go about your day. It's fantastic. Yeah, I love I love reading novellas, too. You know, like, yeah. that's part of, like— Especially my- now 
Exactly. Yeah. My (laughs) process of being like, okay, this is just what I do. I write shorter work and that's fine. Um, Is that like, I really prefer, like sometimes I love like a really long story that I'm just going to be able to be in for days and days and days. But I prefer like books that I can sit down and read in an afternoon, you know, or an audio. I listen to a lot of audio now. So like turn on the audio book and it's just like that afternoon and then it's done and I've, you know, it's been a wonderful experience and I move on to something else. Um, So yeah, that's definitely like the kinds of books I love to read and the kinds of books that I love to write tend to be shorter novellas. At what point did you realize that you could do this? And is there something that, meaning that you were good at this, that you could write fiction? Write fiction to be published? Yeah, write fiction that I feel like often we beat around the bush around, you know, skill and talent. And I think these are real things. Some people are good at it. And so I want to honor that, the fact that you're good at it. And at what point did you realize that you were good at it? Um, <laughs> that's really, that's a hard one. Nobody's ever um, asked me this question. Right. I've never had to answer it. So. <laughs> Um, you know, I think that I'm very, very hypercritical of my own work. I, I'm a, like a very, very hypercritical of my own work. So I think that, um, you know, it was definitely like a gradual process of having like gotten enough stories accepted for publication and like gotten enough really positive feedback um, and heard from readers for whom my books really resonated before I was like, okay, you know, like I am, and, and really like for years, there would be kind of like these conversations around like craft or around the politics and publishing and stuff. And, and while I was very, um, outspoken when it came to like trans issues or LGBTQ issues, I kind of always hung back because I was like, well, like, nobody wants to hear me talk about craft, you know, like I'm just not good enough to have that conversation. Um, And then I just, and I don't know if I can like pinpoint like what book I was writing when I just like reached the point where I was like, you know, no, actually like I've been doing this for a long time. I have a lot of books which have been published. I've been nominated for a lot of awards. Like I'm, I'm good at it. Like by any kind of metric that you want to measure this (laughs) by. Right. (laughs) Right. So, um, That's so yeah, great. I don't know if I have like that exact moment, but I did that. At that some is point, yeah, it built that up I've to gone that. through. So, to that end, is there a book that you feel really did resonate with readers um, and sort of changed the course of E.E. E. Ottoman in some way? Is there a book that put you on the map, so to speak, that you feel like really changed it? Yeah, um, a matter of disagreement, <laughs> like, hands down. It's still my my most popular book, I think, um, as far as, like, yeah, as far as, like, books that have gotten the most positive response to readers, from readers, um, and it was, I'm not really, I'm trying to remember. I wrote and then published A Matter of Disagreement, and um, Song of the Spring Moon Waning, which both have trans characters in them, very, very close together. So it's harder for me to remember, like, which one came out. But it was definitely, like, the book where I was, like, all of these, like, 
negative things that people have been saying about like how there is no audience for trans romance. There is no market for trans romance. You know, they're full of shit because people loved that book. (laughs) Um, And still to this day, you know, I still people for a lot of people, it's the, you know, their favorite. favorite. Right. Yeah. So. Are you able to see why it's that one and not others? This is just my curiosity. I really, I still am very, very, I, I recently, when I, um, when it went out for, of print and then I self-published it, I went back and I did some editing and, um, I hadn't read it in a really long time at that point. And when I went back and I reread it, I was like, oh, the dialogue is like really good in this book. So snappy, <laughs> like, really like absolutely. Good. And I think, I think good dialogue goes a long way with romance in readers. Romance. Like we just want like all that, that matters. Like that clash of the titans for sure. Right. And I think that it also is a, just like a really good example of, the rivals to lovers trope. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I think that it was the combination of the dialogue. Um, the the setting is very, very playful. Like it's right on the cusp of being a historical romance. And so it has that kind of very playful historical setting. Mm-hmm. It has like really, really strong dialogue. And then it's also just very, very trope driven um, and a really good. So Earlier you said, you know, you're, you're low angst. And, and I, I, I'm sort of surprised that you said that because I think about that book and others as not, as not being low angst. But then I realized, like, it's low angst but high conflict. Like, Rivals to Lovers still has that sure, that, that, like, engine you know, driving it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which is a good writing – for those of you out there writing, that's a good thing to realize. Like, low angst does not mean no conflict. They're really mean to each other. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know what else? You know what else I love about a matter of disagreement, and we are talking about this with I think like India Holton's book is you are reading it and you're like, oh yeah, it's like a historical, and then you're like, wait, is it steampunk? Like yeah, there's what, this cool kind of like magic, and so I think there's also a way mm-hmm. in which it's taking something like we think we know, just like this Regency romance, but then so I mean, and I think that appeals to readers a lot. Like it's like I'm looking at you know, historical, but through a kaleidoscope, right? Um, or in this case, like a big uh, telescope, because there's a, there's a lot of telescopes. And then the final kind of legacy question, this one is a, this one is a tough one. We're going to make you choose one of your babies. Um, <laughs> what, um, if you could only choose one to outlive you, which one would it be? Like, I think that I could pick like a lot of different titles for a lot of different reasons. I might be saying this because it's, like, the freshest in my mind, right? Because it's the one that, like, just came out. But The Companion. And I think The Companion because it um, it has a full trans cast. So all of, all of the different, all of the characters, um, it's, a, it's a polyamorous romance um, between two trans women and a trans man. And I think that... Um, and it's a historical romance, and it's a high heat romance. And I think that it really is is doing like it has um, the historical setting that I really love, and I think is like very emblematic of my my books. Um, it has kind of this 
this relationship and this romance that um, is only between trans people and really kind of speaks to that like by a trans author for a trans audience about trans people while at the same time like I know a lot of cis readers have really loved it and enjoyed it um and the fact that it's high heat that it is kind of like a more a more sexy book um I think really one of the things that I really wanted to to do in that is you know kind of revel in the the beauty and the sexiness and the pleasure of trans bodies um, not as, you know, a dehumanized commodity, but as people with agency. Um, and so I think that these, these are kind of like threads that I've had in a lot of my other books um, and thought a lot about as I wrote a lot of my other books. Um, but I think, like, in a lot of ways, this is, of all of the books that I have written, this is the one that I was the most confident in my ability to really tell this story in the fullest way possible, and then feel like I did a really good job executing that. Um, so, I mean, probably my, my answer would probably be different a year from now, 10 years from now. But sure. as of right now, <laughs> Yeah. Probably. But you know what? I think what's interesting about this question as a non-writer is I, as a reader and a critic, am very interested in authors who I perceive to be, like, constantly challenging themselves. Right? And so that answer tells me that you're like, yeah, like, the stuff I'm writing now is I'm constantly challenging myself and what I can do and what – you know, I can put on the page for myself as an author, for, like, my readers. So, you know, I think that's a cool answer because what it tells me is you're you're not like I'm, re- I'm rewriting the same thing every time. And don't get me wrong. Like, sometimes you rewrite the same stuff because it's interesting to you. It's your core story. Well, we also dance around this question a lot. Jen and I, when we were putting together the questions for all of you, we were like, okay, what's this question? What are we trying to get at? And we were like, is it your favorite book? Is it the book you think is best? Because as you know now from writing as many books as you have and stories as you have, like, I don't know if you feel this way, but I definitely know which ones are better. You know, which ones are the co- – like, you know, I know – I, I mean, right? I don't say it publicly. But I know which ones are better. Like, which one is your best book? Which one is the one that you value the most? Which one is most – like, your favorite might be just because, like, of a place you were in your life at that moment. Um, and I think this question is a really – I'm always curious to see how people perceive yeah. it. Um, so I loved that answer. So – Thank you, E.E. E. Ottoman, for joining Thank you us. for being here. Thanks for writing those books all those years ago and and pushing through the roadblocks. That's awesome. We're very glad to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me to come on to podcast and talk about this. I think this is great. E.E., e., why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? Sure. So um, you can find me on social media i think i'm on most social media platforms but particularly twitter um and instagram um it's uh cosmos machine um at and then my website um is a cosmos machine.com um 
or you can just Google my name. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put all of those links in show notes. We'll put everything so. in show yeah. notes. And then as far as where you can buy my books, my books are available from all major um, digital retailers. Everyone, Sarah. I know. And they're all so different. I was listening to this conversation this morning in preparation for this conversation with you. And one of the things that I kept coming back to was this idea that, and I said this at the beginning at the in the intro to the episode, that the history of trans romance is so much clearer for us in this conversation and so much easier for us to sort of put pins in and and mark because it is so fresh in so many ways. Right. And I felt really grateful that we were able to get EE on the podcast now as it's happening in a way that we haven't had there is there's virtually no other area of romance that we can we can really mark in this way. I think the other thing that I I found myself thinking about a lot was how many of the kind of problems that were that E um, identified, right? Like villains, queer coded villains, or, um, you know, barrier gays, or like sort of these really deeply problematic tropes that have been a part of um, queer characters in literature or in movies or in TV shows forever, and how purposeful it is for people to say like this is important for me as a the first trans writer the first queer you know a queer author to speak out against these and to not write them into being in books so that you know kids or young people reading or new readers to the genre or right fresh readers don't have to deal with those same old really harmful stereotypes and you know now when i look back and see like queer coded villains which is a large swath of especially in historicals yes. and romantic suspense from the early days of the genre. Yeah. Yeah. It's painful to read. I'm sure it was painful to read. It's, yeah, it's almost like shocking. <laughs> I mean, I know that mm-hmm. sounds so easy for me as like a cis hat white lady to say, like it, but it, it really is like appalling. You know, the thing that I kept thinking of while he was talking um, was the conversation that we had with Radcliffe about, yes indie presses and indie bookstores. Um, And those of you who listened to the Radcliffe episode will remember, and if not, links are in show notes to it. Um, The the way that um, indie presses really created and, or I'm sorry, the way indie bookstores really created a community and made a community feel welcome and supported over the course of um, many, many years, obviously not just in romance, but in general with LGBTQ um, books. And this kind of question of what does the landscape look like as independent bookstores are fading or changing or shifting. And then on top of it, the loss of these community bookstores isn't entirely filled by the rise of traditional publishing supporting LGBTQ books. Right, right. Um, those two things are, hap- are happening separate from each other. The the loss of, of these bookstores and these community centers and the way that Radcliffe and EE talked about those spaces being essential versus, you know, what's happening on the other side in traditional publishing um, and traditional book selling. 
one of the things that I then keep thinking about is maybe these many laws, right, that are mm-hmm. being passed in states like Texas and Florida, the don't say gay bill, is that, and and I, you know, we are going to have, I think, a little preview. We're going to have an episode about this later. We're prepping it now, and we've been talking to people. But, you know, at its core, if these bookstores don't exist for the community anymore, and then I don't speak for publishing, but I don't think publishing is, uh, they're not real big risk takers. Well, publishing, I mean, I'll say it. I don't speak for publishing either, but like publishers are not speaking up the way that they need to in this, for all of these situations. Right. And, but I think also, you know, I, I teach a graduate school class and uh, Nisha came to talk to my class about sort of like the YA landscape. And um, one of the things that was really interesting that she said, and I was like, oh God, I feel so dumb. I hadn't thought of this is like, what's the pipeline going to look like, right? Traditionally published books take 18 months to two years. And so if traditional publishing is putting the brakes on book or quietly encouraging authors to dial back what they think will be problematic content that will lead to book bannings, then what are we going to have in a year or two, right? And so it's like, if the bookstores are gone, if the books are gone, if the community centers are gone, right? This is, and that's why I think it's, you know, we have to take these attacks seriously. And, you know, not just for adult readers, but for children as readers, for, right? for the, for, you know, I talked to a librarian who was like, these books on my shelves of my school library, this is suicide prevention. Yeah. This is what I think E.E. was saying in, in this conversation yes. was this this sense of, and it came up a little bit when we talked about money and traditional mm-hmm. publishing and how traditional publishing works, but something that I kept coming back to was this idea of, like, it's not enough to just have one, right? right. To say, like, this is our queer book for the season. And we know that that's, I mean, that's how it works, right? There's like the big book of the season and traditional publishers sort of point to it as like, oh, look what we've done. It's problem solved. Right. Right. Um, and I think that the value of independent publishing and self-publishing over the years has, small press publishing, has been that there is there is one from up on high, and then there are all of these others that you can read as well. Um, but when they are not readily available in a community from a community of people who are trusted and who are natural supporters of of young people and anybody who is who is you know searching for community, there's a problem. Yeah. Um, and so when we say here, you know, whenever people say like support independent bookstores, support, you know, local community locate community locations, right? Support support small presses, support, support indie authors. What we're saying is um these people need to live, you know, they need they need to be able to feed themselves and so buy their books and support them. Put your money where your mouth is. And there are other ways to do that, obviously. Write letters to your local your local libraries, write letters to your library boards, write letters to your school boards, to your local your local elected officials and support right access. But I would also say, and I hope this is clear, like in our conversation with EE's books, like E's a great author, right? These are books for these are books for everyone. And that's the part too. It's, you know, we are not in a good place as long as um 
reading is something where it's like, and, you know, this is not just in romance, right? I think, sadly, this is, we see this a lot, right? Like, the base assumption has always been that, like, books with white characters or books with cis characters are for everyone. And then if you're reading something that's not with white cis characters, then it's specialized. Your identity matches. That's why you're interested in that book. As a to. This is a great story. This yeah. is a great romance. This is something well, we will all love reading. And he got into that when when he said, you know, I always felt like people just wanted to talk to me about transness and not about craft. Right. Whereas I don't, I, I mean, no, that's like E. Ottomans writes a great book and has a lot to say about Right, how craft. you do that. Right, exactly. Well, and that's why I, one of my favorite parts of the interview is when he talked about how he, you know, turned in his first story to someone who was at less than three press. And, um, you know, their instantaneous response was like, what else do you have? Yeah. They were like, oh, my God, it's great. Let's right? do more. And I feel like we've had a lot of trailblazers say things like that. Like Sandra Brown, right, sort of famously, they were like, okay, great. What else do you got? And so yeah. I really love that idea that, you know, the the quality of the work is so great that people instantaneously recognize, like, oh, my gosh, this is an author we want more from. Yeah. Yeah. So there's one other thing that I thought was really interesting about this episode, and that is another reason I'm really happy that we have EE on the podcast is, and one of the reasons I want to commit to us, like, keeping the Faded Mate site alive forever (laughs) is um, EE mentioned really briefly a big controversy about a blog called Jess Wave back in, I think it was 2013 or 2014. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, I, I've decided not to put some of it in show notes. I think it really is transphobic. I don't think there's really any reason to essentially put something so harmful or hateful up. But it was very, very difficult to track down what exactly had happened. Because, you know, in those 10 years, people aren't blogging anymore. And their book blogs, like they're, you know, they're not paying to register their website anymore. You know, the original post at Just Wave as a blog is gone. And so one of the things that's also really interesting when we talk about like sort of the history of the genre is how much of it is dependent now. It, you know, completely lives on the internet. And so, you know, if the Wayback Machine has not caught it, then there's just like these, this like ghosts of these controversies that exist, right? Where people will, you know, I was looking back at Twitter, were like, read my blog and my, my blog about it here right? Because that's what you would have done to drive people to your blog. And it's gone, right? And so that's the other part that's also really interesting is how important it is, I think, right, to have transcripts and have this. But, you know, my, I think a lot of people's very big fears that the internet, you know, we just think it lives forever. But it, boy, ten, trying to find the footprints of a controversy that it, that's 10 years old mm. is, can be difficult to do. Well, and this is why I found it so valuable that we had E on this early. Yeah. Um, I I mean, I'm sure that this particular controversy is never going to leave him, unfortunately. But, you know, when we are talking to many of the other people who are in— who are in the Trailblazer series, we're talking to them about time that is very far past. Right. And so there are kind of, we lose a lot of the history just by virtue of it was 30 years ago and I don't remember that person's name and I don't remember that thing that happened. Um, And, 
you know, we are scrambling, you and I and others are scrambling to sort of collect as many of these voices and as many of these stories as right. possible. But um, yeah, it was really great to have him on and really, you know, particularly interesting to have him talk about his place as first. Yeah. Right? I mean, there aren't that many writers who are able to say, I'm first. I was first, right, yeah. And, and um, you know, I think he he's much more gracious than I would be about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, but I also think the other part that I thought was, again, you know, very interesting and as, you know, the, the you know, how to talk about the trans community in a way that's respectful, you know, that even E.E. was like the – the respect that I get as a trans man versus trans women in the genre, mm-hmm. such like Mae Peterson, we've talked about Penny Ames. It's not even that it's all fair in that way. And so, you know, one of the things is, you know, just really trying to push back wherever we can. And, you know, look, I'm sure I've made these mistakes, uh, but, you know, against the against the narrative that, you know, rom- romance, what E.E. said is like, you know, romance is not just a genre for cis women. And mm-hmm. so, you know, really hearing him talk about how that plays out for trans authors and the differences there. And, you know, I just am really, val- I'm grateful that we could have E.E. on to sort of talk to us because I'm learning all the time, right? And mm-hmm. hearing his story and all, you know, getting his voice and hearing about his books and, you know, that's a, it's like a truly a trailblazer, but like, you mm-hmm. know, still burning bright in the sky. I mean, like you said. Yeah, that's, right? it just feels like so present, like right. con- currently blazing trail. Yes, right. As usual, this was great. Our next trailblazer is coming in a few weeks. Now, at this point, we've recorded, I think we've recorded the whole season's worth of Trailblazers. I think we, yeah, we have a few left, um, yes. But we are we are officially, you know, continuing with the series next season. It, there are just too many, too many great voices. Absolutely. So, you can find us at FatedMates.net, where you are starting to see um, Trailblazer transcripts as well. So, that's exciting. And uh, you can find us on Twitter at FatedMates, on Instagram at at Faded Mates Pod. Thank you this week to our sponsors, Kelly Kane, author of An Acquired Taste, and Ava Wicks, author of Virtual Reality Bites. You can uh, support us by checking out their books wherever books are sold. Next week, join us for a read-along of Julie James's Something About You, the first in her FBI and U.S. District Attorney set in Chicago series. Jen will have lots to say about Chicago rep and the White Sox. And uh, other than that, have a great week, everyone. 